the last Wednesday of the month, but since we missed two, could you just throw that door shut, please, Archard? Thank you, my friend. Since we missed two, oh, forgive me, Sean. I was like, how did the door get open again? I'm sorry. I asked Archard to shut it on you. Sorry. Okay, so here's the topic at hand. This is number, it's not number three. Don't pay attention to that three. It's number four in our Principles of Manhood study, um, which is coming out of the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, head back to the book of Genesis. And our goal this evening, we have four big topics that we want to talk about. Um, Two of them are the primary ones. So we want to talk first about marriage. What does the Bible have to say about marriage? Which only directly applies currently to two of us in the room that I'm aware of. Mr. Peter and myself, we're the only married men. Well, that's why I said that I know of. But then, second, I want to talk about singleness. Singleness. Which would then apply, if you're not married, you're in that stage of singleness. And God's Word, believe it or not, God's Word has something to say about singleness. So we want to look at that for a few minutes. Then I just want to briefly touch on sexual purity. Highlight that from 1 Thessalonians 4, because it's closely related to marriage and singleness. And then finally, I want to talk about dating, which, um, is anyone in here? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, dating, no, I'm just kidding. Dating um, is kind of our culture's primary means to take us from singleness to marriage. That's how a lot of people end up finding their future spouse. So we want to take some biblical principles and understand their application to dating. And so I just encourage you to open your heart to God's word and to consider what it has to say. Because it doesn't matter anyone's opinion necessarily on dating or marriage or singleness or sexual purity. But what God has to say is vitally important. But remembering our study, Genesis 1, 26 to 31, has this big idea that we drew out is that true manliness is godliness because God made us in his image in order to represent him on earth. That's our foundational principle from which we're working, and that's what we spent the whole of lesson number one talking about. Then we talked about the principle of hard work and humble rest, that God created us as his image bearers We are by nature made to be workers. We're supposed to work hard. Whatever God gives us to do, whatever our hand finds to do, God says, do it with your might. But then he also prescribes for us a day of rest every week. He prescribes for us daily rest every night. We inherently are dependent on him. And one of the primary ways we see that is we're finite. We run out of energy eventually and we have to get some sleep. Then we talked, number three, about parents, authorities, and submission. Um, Just the call that scripture gives for us to honor our father and mother. And that's a lifelong command. That doesn't go away when you leave the house. But while you live under their roof, or whatever authority God has given you currently, you are not only called to honor them, but to obey them. And as much as what they call you to do is in alignment with what God has said. If they call you to break God's word... Well, then you should obey your higher authority, God. Otherwise, you're called to strict obedience, even if you don't like what they have to say. So until you move out, that's your job. But then we get to our fourth principle this evening, 
which uh, is marriage. But first, I just want you to look back. If you've got your Bibles, look at Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis 1, God creates for six days. He creates everything that exists. Day 1, he creates light and he separates it from darkness. Just look down to verse 4. God saw the light that it was, what's it say? That it was good. Uh, Verse 10. God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas and God saw that it was good. Okay, verse 12. The earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good. Verse 18. God, he gives the, the stars and the sun and the moon in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. good. Drop down to verse 21. Um, And God created great whales and every living creature that moves, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. 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 Verse 25. Once again, God makes all the beasts of the earth after his kind, cattle, everything that creeps on the earth after his kind. God saw that it was good. And then drop down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There's no flaw in creation. God has made everything, and it's all good. And not only is it good, but it's very good. Now we get to the text that we want to read. Drop down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not It is not good that the man should be alone. He's just given Adam instructions um, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you remember that, God says it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Now, a help meet, um, the idea of that is someone who is fitting, an assistant, a helper, someone who is corresponding to him. God says, I'm going to make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. Okay, none of the animals are a help meet or a corresponding helper to Adam. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. And he brought her unto the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave, or be joined unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So God says it's not good for man to be alone. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve that problem. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Well, what's God's solution? He makes a woman. woman. That is pretty cool. Now that word, when it says that he makes, he takes Adam's rib, um, down in verse 20, 22, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman. It's a really cool word, the word made. It's a construction term, and it has the idea of intricacy, complexity, God shaped women as a complex, intricate, perfectly put-together being. Now, 
If you've ever noticed, ladies tend to think just a little bit differently than we do. Anybody ever noticed that before? Yeah. Guess what? Guess what? God did that on purpose. Because if it was just a bunch of men running around, it's not good. We're not good alone. Trust me. We kind of tend to self-implode, if you know what I mean. Without women, we're pretty dumb. Okay, but, but think about that for just a second. You guys, you guys think about that for just a second. God says it's not good for man to be alone. That gives us a guiding principle in life. For the majority of us, God's will for our lives is that we would, when God brings along the right young lady, who's a godly young lady who loves Christ, God's will for you would be to be married. That's God's design. It's a good thing. And let me just commend it to you. Marriage is a good thing. God made it to be good, and it is good. Now, marriage is hard. A good marriage doesn't come without hard work. Let me challenge you with that. If you think that you can waltz into a marriage and that you're Superman and that you're going to be her knight in shining armor and everything will be easy and okay, that's not how marriage works because it's two sinners living under the same roof. Marriage is not easy. It takes hard work. But if you're willing to humble yourself and love and serve your wife, marriage can be awesome. Okay, but we get some more guiding principles. Um, Matthew Henry, he was a commentator uh, a couple hundred years ago. He has a really cool quote about this, uh, why did God make Eve out of the rib of Adam? And Matthew Henry, he's thinking on it. He says that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's a poetic way of saying God made women special. They aren't in charge. A wife is not in charge of the husband. Rather, their role is that of submission. We see that throughout scripture, and we could build that case. But nor are they out of our feet to be trampled upon by us. Men are not superior to women. Anyone who tells you that's a liar. God made them of equal value, worth, as us, but with different kinds of roles. As Matthew Henry says, for a husband with a wife, out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. I think that's a pretty cool poetic way to put it. But um, we also get the guiding principle that marriage is, it's designed to be between one man, Adam, as we have, and one woman for one lifetime. That's very important. As the scripture portrays marriage to us, that is the guiding relationship that God designed, is that of a relationship between a husband and a wife. It's not to be broken by anything but death. Now, because of sin, there is such a thing as divorce, and it happens. But God's original intent wasn't for divorce. Actually, nor was it for death. But because of sin, both can break marriage. But that's a guiding principle. If you someday hope to be married, remember, God designed marriage to be permanent. So that means be careful who you marry because you're stuck with them. If you marry a good one, that's a good thing. 
But if you're not careful, sometimes that can be very, uh, very detrimental. And we'll look at that a little bit more. But additionally, one final thing to point out is that God is the one who created sex and sexuality. So sex is a good thing. God told them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. This is back in chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Additionally, he gives them this. uh, He says, therefore, verse 24, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave or be joined unto his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Sex was designed by God as a good thing within the marital relationship between the husband and the wife. Not before marriage, not outside of marriage. Any other form of sexual activity is bad outside of that marital union. And we want to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But any brokenness that occurs in a marriage is because of Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind and sin. There's some thoughts on marriage for us. What, uh, any thoughts or questions or discussion there before we move on to this concept of singleness? John? Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Sorry, what? Mark chapter 10, my bad. It's okay. What about it's helpful? He restates what he's just talking about. Mm-hmm. It's good. Other thoughts? Questions, comments? Okay, then let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to take at least a little bit of time here because most of you have the privilege of being single currently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. We always used to say bachelors till the rapture, if you know what I mean. That's what you say about guys who are in their 30s and still aren't married. That's right. It's a joke. You're not even to be looking. It's a joke. Okay, but here's the cool thing is your singleness is actually a gift from God. And God has something to say about how you use your singleness. So look down 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. Paul says, But I speak this by permission, not of commandment. For I would, or I wish, I desire, that all men were even as myself. Well, what was Paul? Single. Yeah, he was single. He says, I wish all men were even as myself, but every man has his proper gift from God. One after this manner, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it's good for them if they abide even as I. In other words, stay singled. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. In other words, Paul says, your singleness is actually a gift to you from God. God gave that to you as a gift for this season. Now, if God eventually sees fit for you to be married, then in that season, God gives you that gift of marriage. But until then, Paul says, I wish that you'd actually stay like this. Singleness is a gift. And we'll look at one of the reasons Paul thinks it's a gift. Um, But he also says, did you notice this in verse 9? If they cannot contain. In other words, if they're struggling with sexual desire, if they have that longing then it would be better to marry and have a legitimate means to express that sexuality than to burn, to burn with passion. Does that make sense? Okay. Drop down then to verse 25. The middle middle section has some helpful things to talk about with marriage, um, but we'll leave those unsaid for now. You can read them another time. 
But verse 25, Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that has obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. In other words, Jesus didn't speak specifically to this while he was giving um, them teaching. But Paul says, I give my judgment. And remember, Paul is writing inspired scripture, so this is authoritative. Verse 26, he says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. That's important, the present distress. So the context here, Gabriel, is that there was some very intense persecution going on for these Christians. Some very intense persecution going on for these Christians. Paul calls it the present distress. He says, because of it, I say that it's good for a man so to be. Are you bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a, ma- a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. Um, drop down. Let me find the verse here. Verse 32. But I would have you without carefulness. He who is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Okay, so pause there. We don't have to read all the other verses there. Here's the big way in which your singleness is a gift from God. You have the ability to have an unwavering focus on the things of the Lord, how you can please God. Huh. That's not often how people who are single view it. A lot of people who are single tend to be like, well, it would just be better if I could be married. Then I could have all that God wanted for me. Singleness is God's gift to you. It's how you use it that counts. Are you willing to use it to focus your heart and your mind on the things of the Lord and to see how you can please God with your singleness? Does that make sense? Because when you're married, now... That's God's gift to me. But I also have to consider how can I serve my wife? Does that make sense to you how singleness is a gift from God, not a burden? Now, sometimes it's hard. John? You're saying marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. That's right. It's all a gift. Exactly. Life is a gift. So, in whatever situation you find yourself, thank God for the gift He's given you and use it as such. That's the point. But Paul did give some specific instruction. He says, because of this present distress. In other words, if there's a time of intense persecution toward Christians and you want to follow Christ, it might be wise to remain unmarried during that time so that you're unencumbered by a family. For instance, think of myself. What if intense persecution, myself or Mr. Peter, intense persecution comes up against Christians? We're not just thinking about our own hide, how to stay safe. But we've got a wife and children to care for. We'd really rather not see them get harmed because they're followers of Christ. Does that make sense? That's kind of what Paul's getting at. Zach? And if it is a time of intense persecution, like it said, you lean more toward worldly, worldly things. And it's probably, uh, you know, like you said, best to stay single and not to dive into the world. Yeah. It's good. And just remember, Paul is not saying that marriage is bad because he said it was a gift. But just realize what Paul's getting at is that your singleness also is a gift. 
Mr. Peter? I would say that the ministry opportunities are different. Mm -hmm. um, my ministry opportunities look a whole lot different from, say, Andrew's. Uh, Andrew works his job, and the rest of his time is his own. Mm -hmm. Whereas I've got responsibilities. Um. They're good responsibilities, but they're different. Yeah. Right. And I, uh, Paul says in Philippians 4, we studied it a couple weeks ago, he says, mark those who are following Christ and then follow their example. I would commend to you, if you want a good example of a Christian living out his singleness for God's glory, follow Mr. Andrew's example. And if you want an example of uh, a guy living out his married life as a father and husband for God's glory, follow the example of Mr. Peter. They're doing a great job. Okay, so now, 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm not going to talk long about this, but it's important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We said marriage is a good thing. Sex is a good thing from God given to a married couple between a husband and a wife. Nowhere else is it good. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this. So just start in verse 3. Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Just let me issue a challenge to you. One of Satan's number one tools that he wants to use against you to distract you from God's good purposes for your life is to get you tangled up and ensnared in sexual sin. It's dangerous. It's a powerful tool that Satan is trying to use to derail your life and its effectiveness for Christ. I don't think that's good. Twists. It takes what is good and twists it and makes it bad. That's right. Destroy everything. That's right. And I would just challenge you. If you are ensnared, you guys with me? Okay. If you are ensnared in sexual sin, and you've not talked to anyone about it, and you want to get out of it, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. I would just challenge you, get some help. Talk to someone. Talk to a godly mentor who can help walk you through what the scripture says. It's a sin for which Christ died. There's forgiveness. There's freedom through the Spirit. But if you don't get help, it's a dangerous sin that can drag you way farther than you ever thought it would. I'd like to make myself, Mr. Peter, Mr. Andrew available. If you want to talk about it, we'd be glad to talk with you about it. All right? But now let's talk about dating. <laughs> How would you define dating? Getting to know someone. Okay, Low getting to know odds. someone. What? Low odds. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, getting to know someone. What else? Anything else going to your definition? John? Getting closer to somebody. 
Okay, getting closer. Courting, what's different? Uh, well, courting is you're preparing for a marriage. So it's like a more serious form of dating? Well, kind of. They're both like close, just courting is the next level. Okay, so you would say dating, then courting, then engagement, then marriage? Then death. Or have you ever thought about it? <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was well done. All right, so here's an interesting thing about dating. Dating used to be used primarily, dating used to be used primarily to refer to the activity of going on a date with someone. Now it's been changed into a, into a category of relationship where you're boyfriend, girlfriend, you're dating, and there's a level of commitment. So let me ask you this. What's the level of commitment in a dating relationship? Medium. Minimal. Very minimal. It is minimal. What is basically the promise you make to each other when you're dating? To not cheat. Okay, to not cheat. And by cheating, we mean not to date someone else yes. while you're dating that person. In other words, dating is a promise that I'm going to like you until I decide that I don't like you anymore. Yeah, Do you see the point? Yeah. Dating is a very minimal level of commitment. And dating doesn't appear in the scripture. It's interesting. Does it mean it's wrong? No, not necessarily at all. But we've got to be careful and bring to bear some biblical principles. So, the Christian goal, if you're going to date someone, the goal should be marriage. If you're not aiming toward marriage, you probably shouldn't be dating that girl. You see the point? But what does the Bible have to say? Okay, number one, if you're looking for a spouse, I'm taking that as the assumption, as the goal of a Christian who's dating. If you're looking for a spouse, pray. Ask God to provide wisdom, James 1.5 says. Because Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's a blessing if God gives you a wife, specifically a good wife. But then, not only should you pray and ask God to give wisdom, but determine to be a person worth marrying. Your own sanctification is God's number one goal for you prior to marriage. If you go into marriage and you're dragging all this sin and wickedness in, that is going to make the marriage a whole lot harder. But the godlier the two people getting married are, the better the marriage can be. So determine to be a person worth marrying. Um, look for a committed Christian. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians 6. This is a guiding principle. If you want to do dating and marriage God's way, this is essential. 2 Corinthians 6, we're reading verses 14 to 18. All right, look at verse 14. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, yoke, that's uh, what they put over the necks of the oxen, remember, so they could pull together. In other words, don't team up with someone where it's unequal. Like if you put a big ox with a little ox, it's not a good combo. One's going to pull way too hard. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he who believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Here's a guiding principle. If you want to obey what God has given us as a standard 
for your marriage. God says, don't be unequally yoked. That means if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your search for a spouse ought to start by looking for a committed Christian woman. If she's not a believer in Jesus Christ, not only should you not marry her, but if the goal of dating is marriage, should you even date her? Do you see the point? I would encourage you. That would be a really wise principle to apply in your own life. Commit that you're only going to date a Christian woman if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But not only that, but you want to be equally yoked. In other words, look for someone who shares the same beliefs, the same core values. Maybe if if there's not that shared core values, especially in your faith, it's going to be a rocky relationship because you're pulling opposite directions. And in marriage, you're supposed to be pulling together. That's the goal. Does that make sense? All right. Um, I give you just a couple more principles. I'd encourage you to read Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31. Um, It's a passage that's often been called the Proverbs 31 woman, or a virtuous woman. It gives us a picture of a hardworking woman who serves her family, who's wise and strong, but humble. But then I'd encourage you to look for a beautiful woman. You ought to be attracted to her physically. Absolutely. She should be pretty to you. But specifically, prioritize inward beauty. The beauty of a heart that loves God, that has a a humble and a submissive, a quiet spirit, 1 Peter chapter 3 says. Because let me just read to you one passage from Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 25, 24. It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Let me tell you, if you marry a woman who is quarrelsome, who's butting heads all the time, who's angry, grumpy, it's not going to be a blessing. Proverbs says it'd be better to just hide in the corner of the house, if you know what I'm saying. All right? But then, this last section, I just want to think about it for just a minute. Developing dating standards. And I'd be happy to have this conversation more with you because it's, it's a topic that can be challenging, trying to take the scriptural principles and bring them to bear in a dating relationship. Um, but developing dating standards. In other words, we understand that sex is for marriage. So a dating couple, a boyfriend and girlfriend, ought not be engaging in sexual activity. But that means the question is, how far is too far? Right? That would be an important question. How far is too far? But I would, uh, I'd, I'd encourage you that the better question would be, how can I best preserve my affections for God? How can we be careful not to stir up love until it pleases? Just look at the back of your sheet for a second. God gives us three categories of relationships for between man and woman. Number one, we have marriage. In marriage, sexual relationships are sexual relations are commanded. But then we have neighbor relations. That was 1 Corinthians 7. It said, if you're, if you're single but you're struggling with sexual desire, get married. It's better to marry than to burn. But get the point. In other words, outside of marriage, there's no legitimate expression of sexual desire. You follow that? So to your neighbor or to any woman who's not your wife, no sexual 
relations allowed. But then family. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I think this is a helpful passage that gives us a framework to consider how you relate to the women around you who are not your wife. 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. Now get this, verse 2. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. In other words, Paul gives Timothy a guiding principle for his relations with other women who are not his wife. If they're older than you, treat them like a mother. If they're younger than you, treat them like a sister with all purity. In other words, people might question, well, how far is too far? What sort of physical touch is allowed in a dating relationship? The same sort of physical touch that would be allowed with a family member. In other words, a hug? Yeah, I hug my mom. I hug my sisters. Hold a hand? Yeah, there's a time that I would hold my hand, my mother's hand. Absolutely. You know what I mean? What about a kiss? Oh, yeah, I've given my mom a kiss, probably on the cheek. Um, what about lingering kissing or making out? No, we wouldn't do that with a family member. That's inappropriate. It's obviously off limits with a sister or a mother. Here's Paul's point. If it's off limits with your family member, it's off limits with your girlfriend because it's inherently sexual. And that's to be reserved for marriage. Now, isn't that practical? It really is. Now, one last scripture. I'm going to read it so that you don't have to turn there and take the time. But Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, is a book written about love. It's a beautiful book. The Jews wouldn't let their sons read it until they got much, much older than you are. But, yeah, I think about 30. But it is part of scripture and it has a lot of good in it. Specifically, it actually has a lot of good for singles, such as yourselves. Solomon's wife, who is called Shulamite through the book, she, four times in the book, says to the daughters of Jerusalem, these young ladies, these eligible bachelorettes, if you will, she says, I adjure you. In other words, I charge you or I put you under oath, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, if you're getting romantically and emotionally involved with a young lady, let me just caution you. If you're not in a stage right now where you can marry her, you better cut it off. Not cut her out of your life, but just be friends. Don't stir up romantic, emotional involvement because it's dangerous. Just a couple verses later, it says, because love is like fire. Not even the water can quench it. It's strong like death. You can't resist it. Love is powerful, and it's really hard to turn off once you get it started. So Shulamite says, don't stir up love. Don't awaken it until it pleases. In other words, I just encourage you, consider, maybe you shouldn't date until you're getting close to being ready to marry. John? Patience. 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 Mr. Peter? Yeah, I can, I can testify first-hand experience. Even when I was in college, so we're talking about my early 20s here, I spent 
way too much time worrying about girls. Yeah. When I look back now, I thought, oh, I could, I could have, I could have saved myself a lot of anxiety, shall I say, if I just let it ride and quit worrying about it. You know, and that's right. You know, I mean, yeah, I had some. I had some, a few girlfriends, and then after college, but you know, I look back and I think I would have been just as good or better if I hadn't had any of them. You know, not that they were bad people, and one of them might have been. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, <laughs> if I hadn't dated any of them, I probably would have actually been better off. Yeah. Change your bank account with <laughs> That's right. Always remember, ladies can be expensive. No. But this is a very practical thing to consider. And it's not just for your good, for your own heart's good. But get this. It's not just for your good and your well-being. But it's to help protect that young lady and her heart. If she's your sister in Christ which if she's a fellow believer and you're a believer in Christ, then she is your sister in Christ. Your job is to protect her as best as you're able. Not just to protect her physically if someone was going to try to come and harm her, you know, hit her with a stick, you should defend her. But to protect her, protect her heart. Does that make sense? So Solomon's advice to us, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases just be friends. Just be friends. It's really good. Now, if you have a young lady you're interested in, great. If you think you can logically marry her in the next, you know, one to two years, okay, go for it. If not, probably just wait and beware. Um, sometimes, okay, this is my last comment and then we'll be done. Last comment. Sometimes I remember when I was in high school and college feeling like, well, if I don't start dating this girl, the good one might all, the, this one that I think is the one, she might be taken by the time I'm ready to get married. So I should just start dating her now. Just trust me, that's a bad idea. If, Plus, if, like, if she's the one, then she won't just disappear. Exactly. Because if God says it's her, then it's her. Exactly. You just gotta wait for your own. In God's timing, he will provide a godly woman for you if you're willing to be patient and trust him and wait. What goes around comes around. Some people's wheels are just bigger than others. <laughs> All right, any comments or questions there? If you want to talk more about this, maybe you're like, I'm not even interested in dating. This was, this was irrelevant to me. That's fine. If in a few years you're like, I'm interested, and you want some advice about what God's Word says, I'd love to talk with you about it. It's something I'm passionate about because doing it God's way really is best, even though it's hard. All right? Okay, let's pray and we'll get out of here. Our Father, we give thanks to you for this, that you created marriage because you knew that it was not good for men to be alone. Lord, we recognize our own weaknesses, and yet we thank you for your Holy Spirit who's at work in us. Help us to become godly men, even now, to be faithful men, people who would be worth marrying. And God, I pray for these young men that if it's your will for them to be married, that in your time you would provide a Christ-like young lady for them to marry. 
So we give that over to you. Help us to be patient, not to stir up love until it's time. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.